All right. If you would turn in your copy of the scriptures to Matthew 5, and we'll begin in verse 1. We are really in our second now Friday discussing the kingdom and its servants. And last Friday, in a very cursory kind of way, tried to explain that the kingdom has always existed, it currently exists, and yet it is still future that we will see the consummation of the kingdom, that is when the king himself is on the earth reigning over a true uh, governed area, which will include the entire earth at that time. Um, and that's all I'm giving time for that. I feel like we could talk about all the verses that deal with what the kingdom is and what it's like, look at all the parables that deal with the, king, with the kingdom, and it would take much longer to do that. But really what I want to focus on is, in light of the reality that we are servants of a kingdom, that is truly spiritual, I understand that. It is not physically located here on earth. But nevertheless, we are servants of it. And so in light of being a servant of the kingdom, how ought we act? What should be the characteristics of believers who recognize that they are truly citizens of a heavenly kingdom? And that's kind of what we did last Friday. And today we're going to then concentrate on some of the characteristics. For, we're only one. We'll only make it to one. I'm not very fast in the way I do things. Um, and I do have one other preliminary thing to say about this. And that is, we kind of had this discussion Tuesday night, right, at open mic, about what is a disciple. And we asked the question, what's the difference between a believer, a student, and a disciple? And we had a pretty lengthy conversation about it. I thought it was pretty good. And I will just say to you, that I do make a distinction between a believer and a disciple. I, do, I think that a believer is somebody who believes the gospel. I believe that a disciple, maybe it would be great if it happened immediately upon faith, but I typically find it to be the case that a disciple chooses at some point later in his or her life to become a disciple which would be a step, I guess, beyond being a believer, though I'm not suggesting by that that the believer is some second-class Christian. As a believer, they have all of the rights afforded us by the Lord when he said that all things were his and he gives it to all who believe on him. So you know, I'm, I'm not in any way discounting a person who hasn't taken the moment that some have taken to count the cost of discipleship, which the Lord told us to do, who then chooses to live a life that is a life of daily death to themselves, and taking up their cross and following Christ in a, in a moment-by-moment, decision-by-decision way. It is no longer the way they choose to do a thing. It's the way their Lord or their King tells them to act and think. That's That would be more what I would say a disciple is. And uh, we did talk about the difference between a student and a disciple, only because a student is thought, a disciple, the Greek word um, 
sort of does indicate a student. Um, but it's obvious that it's more than just somebody who's studying things because the disciples followed Jesus around, learned how he did or what he did, and then sought to do those as well. And I like the analogy, whether I made it or someone else made it Tuesday night, of Tanya being a student of Connections Academy, but she's not a disciple of Connections Academy. She's learning math, she's learning English, she's learning history, she's learning uh, um, government civics. She's learning things, but she's not trying to be like a Connections of Academy person, right? She's not trying to be like them. And that's the difference, really, between someone who's just studying versus somebody who is, I'm making this my lifelong pursuit, who I will become, will be based on the things I'm learning. And so to me, there is a slight difference between a disciple and a a student. Nevertheless, with those preliminaries aside, Matthew 5.1, we see a time when the Lord gathered his disciples to him, and he began to teach them what is called the Beatitudes by, by many. Um, and these are, these are things that he expects of those who are his disciples. So in verse 1, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... Now, I really want to get to verse 3, but I want to show you something. If you're a disciple... Not a student. Not just a believer. If you're a disciple, I think you say verse 2. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. But how many of you ever say that about your teachers? I sat down in class, and the teacher opened his mouth. How many people talk like that? Nobody talks like that. But why why does Matthew talk like that? Because he's saying, I hung on everything he did. I noticed he opened his mouth. (laughs) I was like, here comes life to me. And I do think that's the heart of a disciple. The heart of a disciple is saying, the word of God is about to be spoken. Listen. Get ready. Here it comes. And the Lord did this. He opened his mouth and he taught them saying, and we get to our first verse. And our, the only t- uh, characteristic we'll consider today, and that is poverty or poor in spirit. He said, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We can look at Greek words here, but I'll be honest with you, they don't give you a whole lot of insight to look at the Greek words here. The word for poor is patokos. Okay? Here's what it means. Poor. <laughs> it, it's not, there's not a whole lot to it. It means you're in poverty. It is really the word for um, economic poverty. It's like you don't have enough. You don't have what you need. Okay? Now that's obviously, though, not talking about economic poverty here. But I want you to consider just for a second economic poverty. Because then when we transition to poverty of spirit, I think it will tell you how you should understand this, this concept. If you take just this word 
Patokas, and you consider what a Greek would mean by it, and even really what scriptural writers would mean by it. You have David, right, who prays this prayer. He says to the Lord, Do not allow me to be so poor that I steal my bread. And then he said also, Nor so rich that I forget my God. Right? So he prayed, Do not let me be so poor I steal my bread. And then the other part is the rich part. But we're talking about the poor part. I would suggest to you that true poverty, and the way the way biblical writers, he's not the only one I'm going to appeal to, and so give me a second, but the way true uh, the way biblical writers thought about this word was you don't have what you need, therefore you're poor. David was saying, don't let me be so poor, like I'm so economically incapable of taking care of myself, I have to steal bread to eat. That's poverty. Then you have Paul, who says in 1 Timothy 6, that the believer will be content with what? With two things. The believer will be content with godliness and um, yeah, and outer protection. Food. I heard someone say that ever. Food and food and clothing. That coupled with godliness is great gain. Okay, food and outer clothing. So you see, David, same kind of thinking is still there. As long as I have food, I can be content. If I don't have food, I have to steal bread. David saying, I don't want to be that person. I don't want to be so poor I steal bread. Which, by the way, don't you have pity on a person who's so poor they're stealing bread? I mean, honestly, like, if you knew, you were, if you were on a jury, and somebody was guilty, or, or at least, you know, before you guys, before the jury, as somebody who stole a loaf of bread, and, you're, and the prosecutor's saying, why'd you steal it? I hadn't eaten for five days, and I had no money to buy it. How many people in that jury are thinking, you should go to jail for 30 years? No, Nobody's thinking. We're all thinking, man, you should have came to my house. I'd have given you the bread. Right? You, that is what you're thinking. There's a lot of pity you have on this person who's that poor. We just went to see uh, Les Miserables. And if you haven't seen if you don't know the story, it is. It's a guy that's so poor he stole bread to eat and it, he lived during the just prior to the uh, French Revolution and um, he lived at a time when kings could throw you in jail for forever for you know for any infraction they could say they don't like your hair and you're going to jail and in the movie he stole a loaf of bread he went to jail for 19 years and then he's on parole for the rest of his life and he can't get a job anywhere because he has to show people his papers and because he's a prisoner, he's considered like a worthless piece of trash, and he can't get a job. So he, in the movie, if in the story, he throws the paper away and becomes a businessman with, with kind of faking it. He fakes his life because he had no other option. My point simply being, when you know someone's that poor, you're not, you don't, you almost don't even care that they steal, you know? It's the person who has lots of money that's still stealing stuff that you think, you should go to jail. <laughs> I don't get you at all, right? Mm -hmm. 
So you you recognize this pity, but okay. Now to the First Timothy reference in, from Paul, you have um, with with godliness or with um, godliness and food and clothing will be content. Paul says. So food, you know, if you have food, he says you can be content with one one other thing, um, and that's outer protection. In Greek, it really is. It's kind of it's it really is clothing. But it can be used as like the 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 thing you tent in. Um, so some people have tried to broaden it, and I do think that it has a broader sense, or can have a broader sense, so that when you live in climates where just having clothing, you would not be protected. Your life could be at stake. I think that it probably includes housing. Um, so, like, I think where we live, I think that if you don't have a house, if you're living on the streets, while Jesus did that, Jesus lived on the streets, I don't think that God would say you should be content living on the streets when today you'd be outside in, you know, 31 degree weather, it's freezing rain, there's a good chance you're dead, I don't care how many clothes you have on, if you're not in some edifice, right? So, Paul does, he does use the word that's primarily meant, means clothing, but I do think it's meant, what's meant there is protection from the elements. And I do think that in this particular environment that would include housing. I don't think we should be like Jesus and go live on the streets. But I think it would be fine to do that if you lived in other places. I think it would be just fine if you lived in a place where it doesn't hurt your physical being, to sleep outside, to be content with food and clothing. Um, and some of that enters into my mind about how soft Americans have gotten. Because I do also think of like people who travel to the frontier. They didn't really have protection from the elements other than their clothing. And they didn't really even have food unless they shot it along the way and cooked it over a fire. And I think I don't think you could say that they were um, bad people because they did that. I think it was just fine that they did it. And I think it's conceivable in my mind we could do it. But I do think Paul's talking about you should be content with food and protection from the elements. Then he goes right into warning the wealthy there. Like that's the next thing he says. So I'm suggesting to you that you're wealthy if you have more than you need. If you're to be content with protection from the element and food and, and with godliness, it's great gain. Then if you have more than that, you have wealth. You have more than you need. So I have a truck. I believe I have more than I need. I don't believe I need a truck to live a life. You could say, well, what if what, my job's pretty far away? Well, you could find one closer. You know, We live in a country where we don't think like that. We think we can get a job wherever we want and drive to it, and sometimes the things you go get make you think you have a need because you went to get something. But truly, if you had just 
decided to work here at Giant, you can walk there, you don't have a car payment. Right? You don't have car insurance. You don't have gas. For me, I don't know. I, I don't know. I haven't thought about that. But that's probably close to $400 a month that I pay just to have that. That kind of stuff. My wife's even saying more. But yeah, driving to Hershey now. Jeez. Yeah. Well, I was using the truck. It was almost $400 a week, I think. But um, glad we're not doing that now. But that's exactly my point. Take a job in Hershey. And then you start saying, we need a fuel-efficient car. No, you took a job that's requiring that. But you didn't have to take that job. You see what I'm saying? So Paul then says, you have wealth if you have more than you need. And by the way, I'm not saying you should live a life of a pauper either. Solomon said, if you have money, you should spend it because you're not taking it with you. And he had more money than any of us know what to do with. He had more money than he knew what to do with. Um, as we pointed out in the past, that it is said of his time that he paved the streets with silver. Like it was like this is the most worthless metal. Throw it in the streets and take up space with this asphalt stuff with silver. So, so if you have money, I'm not saying you know sell it all and give to the poor. Though we're going to talk about that as we move through these characteristics. But I'm not suggesting that everyone has to do that. I'm just simply saying we ought to be content with food and with protection from the elements. And if we are, and we have godliness with that, we have great gain. We have great gain if we have those those things in place. and Because we're content. Okay. In light of all that then, what does it mean to be poor? To be poor means you don't have what you need. Okay? You don't have the basics of life. You don't have food. You don't have clothing. You don't have a house. Those are things that we could say, okay, you're poor. And that's this word that's here. Now, that's economic, and it's obvious that he's not talking about economic things here, because blessed are the poor, what? In spirit. <coughs> right? We're not talking about the poor in money. He's not saying that people who are financially poor are the blessed people of the earth. That isn't true. He's talking about people who are blessed, are, they're blessed because they're poor in spirit. Alright, now, spirit um, is, is not, let me, let me just tell you the Greek word, it's, but we don't gain anything from it again. Spirit is pneumatic. And that can be used of a bunch of different things in Scripture. It can be used of the Holy Spirit. That's not what's being talked about here. Blessed are those who are poor in the Holy Spirit, like you never hear from the Holy Spirit. You wouldn't be blessed if you were never hearing from the Holy Spirit. So he can't mean that, right? He can't mean spirit like the spirits, like the angels and the demons. Blessed are those who don't have any angels or demons in their life. You might say, yeah, blessed are people who don't have demons in their life. Yeah, that could be true. But I don't think that's at all what he means. And he certainly can't say he's talking about angels. Like, you'd be better off if no angels bothered with you. When the scripture says we do have angels that are looking out after us and ministering to us. And, you, you know, you can't say it'd be better to not have them when the scripture says we have them and it's good. It's, it's considering it's good. So... Spirit, then, could also be the human spirit. 
Blessed are you if you don't have a very good human spirit. If you're poor in your human spirit. Um, typically, human spirit is like the real essence of you. It's frequently how it's used in Scripture. So, our, is what, what the Lord's saying, you'd be better off if you didn't, you didn't have you. I don't think he's saying that. Um, so, rather, I would su- suggest that what spirit here is, is another way it's used in Scripture. And that's like the spirit um, that is similar to school, school kind of spirit, when you talk about school spirit. When you talk about, we have spirit, yes we do, we have spirit, how about you? That spirit is like, I'm all for my school, I'm all for uh, my football team, and it energizes me, and it gets me going, and it drives me, and it's, that's what I'm all about. Okay, I would suggest to you that he's talking about you're poor in that kind of thing, though about life. Okay, so you're poor in spirit. So what would that mean if you're poor in spirit? I would say what, you're, what the Lord is saying here is, Blessed are you when you think very little of your capabilities to do life. That's when you're blessed. Now, that goes against, I think, many people's understanding of that. We try to build up spirit. We try to say, we have spirit. Yes, we do. We have spirit. How about you? We're going to win because we have more spirit than you, right? Our team's going to beat your team because we're better and we believe in ourselves and we're going to do it. We have more power behind us because of the spirit. And the Lord's saying, yeah, it'd be better if you don't think like that. To be his disciple. To be blessed. I mean, literally, that's what he says. That the people that are in this state, that have this kind of poverty of spirit about themselves, they're blessed. They're blessed people to be in that state. It would be the opposite of self-confidence. You're not confident in yourself to do something. Of course, you might start asking the question, well then what are we confident in? What what makes us what makes this a blessed state? And I would suggest then, obviously, I think it's obvious, that you should be confident in the Lord for why you do what you do. It's like you give up all of the things that motivated you and drove you towards a thing. And you say, I'll take your motivations. I'll take your things that drive people. I'll take your way of doing this. I'll say my way's not right and your way's right, Lord. That's the person who, as a disciple, will be blessed. Now, to the other thing I want to say about this. The blessed here is really just the state of being. What, and In other words... If you're poor in spirit, it's not like God's looking at you saying, Oh, I'm going to give you lots of money. I'm going to bless you. Like you hear some people talk, right? I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to serve God, and if I do, I know I'll get a good job. That's not this blessed. He's just saying, you're in a good place when you think you're not capable of doing a thing, but God is. 
whatever that thing is. That's when you're in a blessed state. You're in a place where God would commend you, where God would say, this is a good thing. Of course, the Lord Jesus Christ is God. He's the one saying it here. He's the one saying, blessed are those who are poor in, in spirit. And then he tells you why, too. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The people who are not self-confident, the people who are not self-willed, the people who are not sure of themselves, the people who say, all of the ways I think are wrong, and I discount them, and then I think all of the ways God thinks are right, those are the ways I'm thinking from now on. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, in other words, they're going to get this reality that I'm talking about when I, when I talk about the kingdom and its servants. You're going to realize that there's truly a spiritual kingdom we live in. And it doesn't function the same way the world's kingdoms function. It functions a totally different way. It functions based on principles like this. That the, the servants of it aren't basing their decisions on their, their capabilities. Think of some of the decisions you, that, not us necessarily, think of some of the apostles did. How could any of these things be based on any of the things that they were capable of? You have walk on water. What would Peter be thinking? I think I can do this. I think I can really pull it off. I think if I just walk light, I'll make it. He, he's not thinking I can do this. He's not thinking it's, it's possible to pull off what God's calling me to do here. He's not thinking that. But he's thinking, you're the Lord. If you want me to come out there, tell me to come. And the Lord says, okay, come. Okay, do it. Get out of the boat and walk over to him. Right? It's, it's when he sees the waves, right, that he starts realizing, you know, this isn't possible. This isn't something I can do. That he sinks. Right? And he yells, save me. And the Lord does. Which, by the way, tells me he walked pretty far. Because when they first saw him, they thought it was a ghost. They didn't recognize him out there. I realize it's dark, so he may not be more than 10, 15 feet. I don't know how that played out. But to walk any level, any, any amount of distance on water is impossible. But he did. He walked a certain distance. And then, whether you've ever considered this, after the Lord saved him, he apparently walked back on the water. To the boat. I mean, he, he realized, oh, yeah, what was I thinking? It wasn't about whether I'm capable of doing this. You're, you're God. You'll just say we should do it, and that's what we're doing. If you... Okay, that's obviously a miracle, right? I can take one now that's a little bit less of a miracle in people's minds, but I don't know how it can be any less of a miracle. you got these 12 guys, minus Judas, because he kills himself. So you got 11 guys after the death and resurrection of Christ, who are terrified that they're next. They think that they're going to go to jail or die. And, in fact, when the Lord went to Jerusalem, what did Thomas say? Let's go with him so we can be killed. A lot of, a lot of hope in this decision, right? 
But that's his hope. Well, yeah, let's, let's just go and die with him. That's what's going to happen. And now they're in this upper room, and it says they locked themselves in there because they're afraid that they're next. They're afraid they're going to die. And really, honestly, three days later, they are world changers walking out of a room. How is that possible? They're, they're going to now be preaching on the streets that Jesus is risen from the dead, and they're going to be arrested, and they're going to be whipped and flogged. And after they're flogged, they're going to be told, don't ever talk in this name again. And they're going to say, whether it's right to listen to you or God, you figure that out. We're listening to God. And walk right back out and preach. And it gets so bad that eventually those who hate him, hate them say things like, you have filled this area with this name. Yeah, I know. You know, they go into uh, um, one of the cities, was it Damascus, was into, into Damascus, and they, they disrupt the entire commercial trade of idol uh, purchases. So much so that everybody hates them and tries to kill them. Because they're doing this. Do you honestly think 11 guys who are terrified for their life are going to go out the next day after they see Jesus and just, yeah, let's just change the whole world? That's, that's not possible. Why could they do it? Because they didn't believe in themselves. They did not think they had it within them to pull it off. They weren't confident. They weren't self-confident. They were confident in the Lord, but they weren't self-confident. They didn't think that they were capable of this job. Peter even told the Lord that, right? At some point in their, in their walking when he was on the earth, Peter said to him, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Like, he, he just was like, obviously I'm worthless. Why do you bother with me? And, and I don't think we really know how worthless they must have felt. Have you ever felt like you're worthless? I know you have, because some of you have told me this. But can you imagine walking with the God of the universe when you are not regenerate? You're not, you don't have the New Testament theology that's happened to you, namely that you have God the Holy Spirit living in you, and you've been saved. And you're walking with Jesus. Do you realize that everything you do, he would disagree with? Whether he tells you or not, I, you know, we don't see him do that. We see his kindness and his mercy like crazy, actually, with them. But every once in a while, they ask him things like, Can I, be, can I sit on your left and your right? You know, okay, you're going to get blasted. You should have just kept your mouth shut. This isn't going to work out well for you. Or Peter's going to say, you're never going to the cross. And the Lord's going to say, you think like Satan. Like, what a, what a wonderful uh, comment to have made to you. Uh, yeah, yeah, this is what I think, Lord. I think I love you. You're great. Yeah, you're satanic. Wow, what a wonderful reality. You don't, you don't think that happened every day? I think it happened every day. You ever, people say, what if you could get a time travel and go back in time would you go back to when Jesus was alive never 
I'd never go back to when Jesus was alive, because that means I wouldn't have the Holy Spirit either. And he would be, every time I turn around, saying, Rick, you're wrong. You're wrong. Why did, I mean, just, again, think of Joseph. And I, I'm going to, I want to, I'm trying to point out how little these people thought of themselves. And that was a good state for them. But think of Joseph now for a moment. Scripture does not say what happened to Joseph. Um, doesn't say if he died. There's a theory he died. And it doesn't say, though, why he's gone after about age 12. My personal theory is he got absolutely sick of trying to raise God Almighty in the flesh. Because every time he did anything, he was wrong. And his kid was right. Every time. Can you imagine being a parent of that? You know, like you just sit down at the kitchen table. What happened today? Jesus tell you, well, you should. Oh, yeah, forget it. Can't even tell you anything. You're perfect in everything you do. And I think you wigged out. I think you just said, I can't deal with this. I think it started from the moment he hears from an angel. This is God inside your inside this woman. And it's like, this is who? What are you talking about? I'm not saying he didn't believe. I'm not saying he uh, apostatized. I'm just saying I can empathize with him. I can't imagine being around somebody who's perfect and knowing how much you mess up. And then we read Peter Peter's comment, just depart from me. I'm a sinful man. I don't think we get the full impact of what Peter was thinking there just with that cursory reading. I think he's really saying, all right, over the years of following you, I've come to realize I have nothing to contribute to this. Every time I think I have a good idea, you tell me how I'm wrong. Or you, or else you keep your mouth quiet. Not like here, he opened his mouth. But like you keep your mouth silent, and then I finally say, what do you think, Lord? And I regret every second later after that, you know. Look, what the Lord is telling us as disciples is that we're in a really good place when we have no confidence in ourselves. Okay, now, I do want to undo the negative image here of people who are have no self-esteem because I think there are people that have no self-esteem, but they also haven't replaced that with a confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't want you to think, if that's you, that you're blessed. Because you're not blessed. You're probably disabled, frankly. You really... Well, let me go there in a minute. There are people who think low of themselves. Like, everything I do is a failure. If I did this, there's probably something wrong with it. Can you think of anything wrong with it? No, I can't think of anything wrong with it. But there probably is. And Paul doesn't have that kind of attitude when he says, um, the Holy Spirit bearing witness with my conscience, I know of nothing against me. But then he says, but I know that doesn't acquit me. Like, maybe there's, maybe there is something, but I'm not thinking I've done anything wrong. The Holy Spirit's not telling me I've sinned in any way. So, I think I'm doing everything right right now. 
And he says, that's not sufficient to say I am. He recognizes God can judge, and God can say, no, there is there is something wrong here. But he's simply saying, I can't think of one single thing that I've done wrong, so I'm not admitting that there's sin. But there are people who think that, yeah, I've, I don't think I've done anything wrong, but I'm sure I have. And because of that, they never accomplish anything in the Lord. Let me... Let me tell you, really, what I would say the source of that is, and um, it's this is not I can't I can't show you a verse that says this. So if you don't want to believe this part, that's okay. It's my opinion, but I believe when a person is always putting themselves down and never and doesn't have a reason to do it, that really it's an issue of pride that they actually think too highly of themselves. Because this is a good state to be in. I can't undo what the Lord said here. This is a good state to be in. But what I do think they're doing is they're not believing what the Scripture says. Namely, they're forgiven. They're saying, yeah, there's definitely something wrong with the way I do things, so I'm not doing anything. God's not saying that. God isn't saying that. But they're believing that about themselves that's pride that's saying something god doesn't say if god doesn't say you've done something wrong and you do you're proud you think you know more than god it's a good state to be in a place that has no confidence in your abilities to obey god but that doesn't mean you can disbelieve the rest of Scripture that talks about He's capable of doing things in us. That when we have faith, we can actually do things like walk on water. It's this same Jesus who says, If you say to a mountain, go jump in the sea, and have a little faith, it will do that. I am I'm absolutely convinced of this that that will happen someday that I, I'm convinced that somebody will say to a mountain go jump in the sea and it will happen and I'll tell you exactly when I think it's going to happen I think it's going to happen when Jesus comes back and the scripture prophecies say he will lay the mountains low and fill in the valleys and I don't know how that will happen I really don't I just know I believe it will. I believe that the scripture is not speaking metaphorically there. I would have been okay with saying it was metaphorical until Jesus made the same point. That with just a little bit of faith, you can tell a mountain, go jump in a sea, and it will do it. And I think he's going to show that's real, that happens. I think he's going to do it. But he, But you realize he's not even saying that about himself. He's saying that about one of us could do this. One of us could tell a mountain, go jump in the sea, and the mountain would jump in the sea. You could say all the stuff you want now. Well, how do you know it's the will of God to tell the mountain to go jump in the sea? I understand all that. I do. I get that. I, I, you know, I've thought about what are scenarios that that could happen. I could see, like, I am trying to evangelize this place, and this mountain's in the way, and I could evangelize people right over there. If I could just get rid of the mountain and say to God, yeah, 
this this mountain's in the way. It has to go. And like believe God, and it would. And I could go evangelize the other yeah. side. I'm, I'd have zero problems believing that could happen. But I, I, I'm not convinced it will. I'm just saying, because I don't know the will of God. It'd be one of those prayers. I'd always, you'd have to pray, like, if the Lord wills, get rid of this mountain. But I do believe it will happen. Okay? But who, except for the Lord Jesus Christ, has the ability to make a mountain go jump in a sea? Nobody. Right? You don't have that capability in you to do that. That's easy, though, for people to realize, yeah, that's when I really have to believe in God. They, for some reason, don't think they have to believe in God when it's things like this, though. I get angry at people. Somebody cuts me off while I'm driving, and I want to give them special signs and yell at them. And then, oh, well, I better not be like that. I better be a good person. And you, for some reason, think you have the capability to do that. You don't have that capability. You have what's called sin nature. You have sin. That's The reason you do that is because that's what you're capable of. How do you overcome that, though? The same way you overcome throwing a mountain into the sea. Faith. You believe God can do it. You accept the word of God to be kind, for example. Love is kind, right? And you think to yourself, I will be kind. How will I be kind? Is there anything in me that will make me kind? No. There's nothing in me that will pull it off. But God has given me the Holy Spirit within me. He's then given me the scripture that tells me to do it. And he says, if you believe the word, it will become the way you are. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So, even in things where, for some reason, Christians, well-intended Christians, think, I have what I need to do this. Well, you do if what you mean by that is, I have the word of God, I have God the Holy Spirit in me, and I have faith in that thing. Yeah, you do then. But if what you mean is, I can be a good person in this, I can stop saying this bad word. No, you can't. No, you can't. And really, again, I'm saying that that's pride that thinks these kinds of ways. Paul calls it that in Colossians 2 when he calls it um, will worship. Like people just do this and worship their own will. I can will this into being. No, you can't. You can't will it into being. But, the Word of God says it, you can have faith in it, and God the Holy Spirit in you can truly pull it off. And it will be real spiritual, like, miracle kind of life, in the sense of, it's the same as walking on water, when you actually act kind to people. Because it was something that you couldn't pull off in and of yourself. But God can do it in you. Just like walking on water, it was nothing you could pull off on, on your own. But God can say, walk on water, and you walk on water. Both are possible for the believer. Because, because of what God's provided. Neither are possible for the believer because the believer's capable of it. In and of themselves, if you understand what I'm saying. This is, this place of being poor in spirit, of 
like truly not being not being confident in yourself, not believing in yourself. I work in the psych field. I can't tell you how many times I hear people tell people that. You just have to believe in yourself. No, you don't. That won't help this person. It's positive thinking. I understand positive thinking. But I know that it won't affect righteousness. It can't do that. And I actually think that's what Romans 7 is all about, with Paul saying, I know to do right, and I never do it. And I know not to do wrong, and that I always do. Right? And he says, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? And then he realizes, I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. Like, nothing in me will pull that off. But Jesus Christ can pull it off in me. Okay? I want to show you three other verses that, or two other verses that say the same thing as this. And then I want to show you one example of the opposite. People who did not feel they had to be poor in spirit. First is Proverbs 16, 19. It reads, Better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. Somebody accomplishes something that they think is great. I'm not saying any negative thing about our political leadership, okay, at all. Please don't think that I'm doing that, because I think it's sin, actually, to do that. I don't care that the United States says it's freedom of speech. I think God says you can't speak evil of dignitaries. But when a president wins his election, his whatever, so when Obama won his election, there is, in political philosophy... To the spoil, or to the victor goes the spoil, right? He gets to say who's going to be on his cabinet, and who's going to run this, and who's going to run that. And people can be just like this. They divide the spoil with the proud. It could be, and I'm not saying it is, but it could be that President Obama thinks we did it because we're such perfect politicians. I don't know. I, don't, I mean, I'm not saying I know what he thinks. But... If he thinks that, and if he's willing to give you a seat, because you are like champion his cause, this proverb saying, it's better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. Like, like you're getting all this good stuff because this happened, and yet God's thinking, yeah, it's not good. You think it's good, but it's not good. Conversely, he thinks it's much better to hang out with a bunch of poor in spirit guys who don't think highly of themselves, but who think God can do it, but don't think highly of themselves. Another verse shows you that God really does like this kind of person. Isaiah 66 and verse 2, prophet Isaiah said this, For all those things my hand has made, and all those things exist, says Yahweh. But on this one will I look. On him who is poor and of a contrite spirit. And I love this. And who trembles at my word. Okay, God's saying, yeah, I got a lot of good stuff too. That's true. I own everything. I made it all. But it doesn't impress me. To have that stuff it doesn't impress me. If you have you have a piece of property and you're thinking, oh, it's a great piece of property. The soil's so perfect, grows the best crops, whatever. God's not up in heaven going, 
Yeah, it's that's great. You have that. No. He's saying, I look at the person who's poor and of a contrite spirit. Again, not poor of economic poverty, but poor and of a contrite spirit. Like, I think of myself as low. I think of myself as somebody who needs God desperately. I can't live without Him. I can't move. I can't make my next step if He's not helping me. That's how bad I am. And then I love the last part of this. I really, as a person who loves the Word of God, if you do love the Word of God, if you love to study the Word of God, this next statement is just, I think you would just think, this is awesome. I love this reality. Because the other thing that God says, He looks on people that do this, when they tremble at His Word. I love that. I love that analogy. I love that whole picture. It's like the Word of God's being taught, and you're going... It's the Word! God's thinking, I like people like you. I like like when people are like you. Yeah. That's how much you need His Scripture. Your ways won't work. They they will work on... By the way, they will work in this kingdom. Not Not in God's kingdom. They will work in this kingdom. If you want to be rich, follow Donald Trump. You know? Do what he did. He's rich. You want to be really rich? Just do whatever he did. And I don't really know what he did because I don't want to be rich. But I, I know it has to do with real estate. So real estate's a good way to go if you want to be rich. And do it. Do exactly what he says. My guess is you'd get rich. I actually believe that the principal um, knock and the door will be open, ask and you will, you'll receive, seek and you will find. I actually believe that principle works for just about anything. I don't even think that's supposed to be necessarily like, this only works if you're seeking God. Like, don't think if you're seeking riches, you won't find them. Yeah, I think seek riches, you'll find them. I think knock on a door of popularity, and you'll find it. You know, act like someone who needs to be popular, you'll find popularity. Um, act like somebody that has to be liked at all costs, you'll be liked at all costs. At least for a while, anyway, because I think people get sick of that. But, I don't think that principle is meant to be just purely this, this, only if you were thinking of spiritual things do we count this. I just think it's a principle. If you really go after something, you'll find it. Um, it was Bill Clinton, as I think about the other, uh, other president. Bill Clinton said when he was 14, he wanted to be the president. He became the president. I'm not saying God directed that. I'm just saying he did. He patterned his life after, what do you do to become a president? I don't really know what you do, but my guess is you go to either Harvard or Yale, or you distinguish yourself greatly in the military. So if you want to be a president, do one of those things. Uh, one of those three things. You have a better chance than if you did what I did and go to educate, get an education undergraduate degree at IUP. I don't know anybody that went on to be the president from that. Okay, Maybe there is one, but I don't know of one. So, act like these things. Seek these things. You'll find them. Okay, But I think it also applies to spiritual realities. You want to really please God? You want to really do what God says in your life? Then tremble at His Word. When you hear the Word of God taught, just be like, man, this is everything I need. I'm going to base every decision I make on this stuff. And if you do, God's saying right here, I like looking at people that do this.
These are the kind of people I like to hang out with. All right. The last one I want to show you, it's a negative example. I think probably many of you are familiar with it. It's Revelation 3. I'm going to have you turn there because there's more to it than just uh, one verse. This is the um, Laodicean church. I'm trying to get my computer to go there quicker, but it's not. The Laodicean church is, if you've read this, not the people you want to be. Right? You're going to see that the thing that characterizes them is the exact opposite of being poor in spirit. Start in verse 14, Revelation 3:14, And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Here's why. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. Now this has nothing to do with economics, because keep reading. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. And then he goes on to say about how he loves people. Um, it's not economic stuff he's talking about here because do you think any of them think they're clothed but they're really naked do you think any of them are coming to church with no clothes on and when people say you don't have clothes on they're saying yeah oh yeah we do no he's not talking literally is he so same thing go with the other like do you think any of them he's saying to them they're they're walking to church and he he goes you're blind and they're thinking no i can see but he's, no, you're blind. Is that what's really... No, he's not talking about physical stuff. He's saying that they have a mentality that they don't need God. They can do whatever they need to do on their own. They're capable of doing what God's... Maybe they even think this is what God's called us to. We're capable of doing it. We do not need God. And the Lord's saying... You don't realize how poor, wretched, miserable, and blind you are. So I counsel you to buy gold refined in the fire. So is this like a is this like counsel to like buy gold because stocks are crashing right now? No, because who buys gold that's refined in the fire, right? This is talking about I counsel you, which by the way, first I think it's First Peter one seventeen talks about this exact thing about getting gold that's refined in fire. And there it's talking about persecution. Like, when, when times get tough, stop quitting, is what the Lord's telling them. Because apparently they do. When the times are getting hard here, they're saying, well, this obviously isn't the will of God, let's not do this. Let's go in a different direction, because the easy way is the way God wants it to be. But obviously we're, we're meeting resistance, so this can't be right. And... 
Peter is counseling people who are going through that kind of tribulation as saying, you're getting gold refined in fire. He's saying the exact same thing that the Lord's saying here about these guys that they don't have. So my guess is that they have backed out of difficult kinds of things, and the Lord's saying, stop doing that. Stop telling me that I'm leading you in easy ways. I'm not leading you in easy ways. I've led you in this way, and you don't want it to go there, so you just go a different way, and then you say you're capable of doing whatever I've called you to do. But you're not capable of doing what I've called you to do. It's just the opposite. Everything you think you are, I think the opposite of you. And the last part of that, too, I, I appreciate this kind of counsel from the Lord. They're supposed to buy gold refined in fire. They're supposed to buy white garments, which are the righteousness of the saints, in this same book, right? The uh, white linen garments are the righteousness of the saints. So he's saying buy white garments. He's not saying Christians should only wear white to church. He's saying act righteously. Do righteous things. Stop doing what you guys call good. It's not. Buy things that really are good. But I love this part at the end here. Um, Anoint your eyes with eye salve. Why? That you may see. In other words, one of the issues they have here is they have no perception about the realities of spirituality. They don't get that they are desperately in need of God to accomplish everything. They think that they're capable of doing it without Him for some reason. And he's saying, you guys need some serious perception. You need to see what's really true about how you can function and how I need to be a part of it. Um, we're, we're really we're at the hour mark. So as we kind of finish this up, I want to be careful to caution the person, not, not, not that I think there's one here, but I mean the person, the kind of person who hears a message like this and loves to have self-esteem issues and think of themselves as worthless. I don't. That's not what he's talking about. But he is talking about the reality that people should, Christians should, disciples should, truly believe they're not capable of doing what he's called us to do, but he is, in and through us, capable of doing it. We, we just, as a church, New Life of Shillington, we just did what I still think is a miracle. I just think it's an amazing concept in my mind that two very divergent groups came together for the sake of Jesus Christ. And that all that together is what makes it a miracle. If we came together to get more money out of the building, now I'd think, yeah, I could see people do that. Yeah. But I mean, just, just think about, for a second, just think of uh, Herod and um, Pilate. Up until Jesus' trial, it says that they hated each other. They were enemies. They became friends at the let's kill Jesus moment. Like they, In other words, come together over killing him. Okay, we can do that. But up until this point, we've hated each other. We've had, we've had opposite ambitions in life. I wanted to get power. You wanted to get power. I didn't like you. You didn't like me. But now we've got Jesus in front of us. You know, I like you. You should kill him. I'll kill him too. They come together over killing Jesus, according to the scripture. And what I mean by that is, it's not surprising to me when two very different groups come together for evil purposes. I believe that stuff happens. 
I do. I believe. I believe. Uh, I mean, I don't. I didn't mean to make this a political thing, but how many times have you watched countries that seem to have been enemies for a long time agree over something? You know, we have to do something to the Iranians. Well, we've always hated you. Yeah, but now we like you because you think we should do the same thing to the Iranians. And they come together over this kind of stuff. But the idea of two diverging groups coming together for the sake of saying, let's magnify Christ. Let's love each other and say the Lord Jesus Christ is everything. Yeah, that sounds to me like the will of God when I hear that. But as soon as I hear it, what I think is, but we're not capable of this. If we if we try to do this in and of ourselves, we're gonna we're gonna mess it up. But God can do it. God can make that reality take place. That's just one example of what I'm talking about. It can happen on individual levels for each one of us, where you're called to do something that you know, man, it's like walking on water for me. Yeah, but you can do it. You can you know, if being kind to someone is actually walking on water for you, you're capable of it. Not in and of yourself, but in and through what the Lord Jesus Christ has provided through His Word, faith in it, and God the Holy Spirit to empower that. Those are the three things you need to actually obey God. And that's true of every issue of your life, every single one. How do you treat your, your wife if you're a man? You need the Word about how to treat your wife, faith in the Word, about how to treat your wife and God the Holy Spirit. And you'll pull it off. How do you handle your finances? You need to know what the Word says about your finances, faith in the Word, and God the Holy Spirit to pull it off. Those three things. You all have God the Holy Spirit. If you're a believer, you have God the Holy Spirit. So the two things you may not have are faith in His Word, and you may not know what His Word says. But when you have those three things, you are capable of doing what God has called you to do. Just not in and of yourself. And when you realize that, the Lord's saying in Matthew 5, 2, you're in a blessed state. You realize where your real power comes from. Not in and of yourself. Alright? Grace and peace.